Hello, and welcome to Represent the Podcast, the show where I, Katie Beth McKinney, sit down with composers from historically marginalized and underrepresented backgrounds and discuss their works for the horn. Hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Represent the Podcast. Today, I have with me composer Lauren Bernofsky. Lauren, thank you for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. It's just always so much fun to get to know so many different composers. And and you are one of the composers I've looked at your music for years. And so having to get to finally talk to you about it, I'm really excited. So um, I'll start right in. How did you get started in music and composition? All right. Well, in music, um, my parents, I had this early memory. I was around seven years old and my mother came into the room and said, oh, we're going to start you on violin lessons. So I, oh, okay. So that was my sort of inauspicious start with music. Um, and I did take to the violin. I love it. Um, I practiced and all that stuff. You know, I was a good kid that way. Um, and it never occurred to me to try my hand at writing music because um, I was never, ever given a piece by a woman to play. And I never heard music by women on concerts. Um, so, so everyone knows about what year we're talking about. I started violin lessons in 1975. So, so back then, you know, and I did, I started on the Suzuki method and that method was at least at that time, all pieces by men or things called folk song. Um, and anyway, I was getting more and more serious about my violin playing and my junior year in high school, I enrolled in the local arts high school. This is the New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts, which turned out to be a great move for me that really sent me on my way as a professional composer. And oh, and here comes a cat meowing. So I guess we might have a cat as part of this recording, but that's okay. <laughs> no complaints. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so um, you know, I, I enrolled as a violin performance major, and the the theory teacher there, his name was Dr. Bert Bro. Um, he was a composer too. And without asking if I was interested or not, he said, oh, you're going to be in my composition class now. So he took about five of us and we had this extra meeting once a week for a composition lesson. And I completely did not take serious, take it seriously that I had any aptitude for being a composer because I'm, I'm not a composer, I'm a violinist. Right? <laughs> and and, and uh, anyway, so he gave me a little exercise that had five distinct pitches and he said you can use these in any order repeat pitches uh, basically he's giving us um some some rules that are going to narrow down the myriad of possibilities for music and you know um these limitations were very helpful um it's a good beginning exercise for a someone starting out as a composer who, who doesn't even think they're a composer so he gave me this little exercise and i wrote like a two or four bar um melody for him and you know brought it in the next week he said oh this is this is quite good okay for next week bring in something that's got like a melody maybe a little longer with an accompaniment there and um so I did that and you know again he looked at it and encouraged me and then I was starting to get encouragement from some of my classmates it was really interesting that even though we had these really limited resources for pitches to work with everyone's little composition they came up with or exercise was really distinctive. It sounded like their own voice. And I found that really fascinating. Anyway, um, I he was giving me longer and longer assignments. And 
my first piece, which I was not an assignment, I just took it upon myself to write, was a little violin sonata. Of course, you know, for the instrument I knew the best, so violin and piano. And um, we had been learning about different scales in music, and we had learned about the whole tone scale, but hmm. I'm going to write a sonata <laughs> in the whole tone scale. So I had this funky little sonata, three movements, um, and I ended up playing it on my senior recital. And it's nothing that I would use for anything, but I'm happy to to have a copy of it. And I'm happy to have this um, sort of an example of my early writing that was more based on my talent and aptitude than what I had been told, you know, about, you know, how you should be writing music, sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, I Maybe it's too much to say I would like a noble savage as a composer, anyway. <laughs> Um, maybe more on the savage. I don't know. Anyway, um, and it was one of the few relics from my childhood that I saved. Fortunately, I took a copy of that with me to college. And the reason I'm talking about relics being saved is that my first um, notebook of my earliest composition exercises is gone because I left it in my house when I went off to college. And my house was in New Orleans and oh, no. my parents, yes, that happened. We lost everything in Katrina. How awful. Water was up to the rafters for two weeks. So yeah, everything from my childhood that, yeah, it was basically gone. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. But, oh yeah, thank you. I mean, at least I have that sonata. It's true. And, yeah. <laughs> so as you know, it's in my little childish handwriting and things like that. But you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to you know, for me to look back on that's like, okay, you know, there's some counterpoint going on in there and some imitation and, you know, some things that are, you know, sounds like legit music for some of it. I'm sure it's fun to see how it evolved. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, yeah, so like baby Lauren Bernofsky composer. So, <laughs> yeah, anyway, so um, here I am in high school and I have to decide, okay, what am I going to do in college? I definitely was completely like, I'm besotted with music in every way. You know, I just lived it, drank, breathed it, all that. Um, so I was definitely going to go into music and the possibility was there. Okay, do you want to be a composition major, violin major? And I had been doing violin for so many years at this point, but only composition for about a year and a half. And it just didn't seem like, like I didn't enough identify as being, yeah, that's my thing. I'm a composer. Like I, I it was not enough to hang my hat on yet. So I went off to college for my undergrad at Hart School of Music um, as a double major. So it was a five-year program and I'm so glad that I did it. So I majored in violin performance and music composition. Oh, how cool. So, yeah. And that has really, I think being a performer has really determined the sort of, the sort of composer that I am definitely, mm-hmm. because I know what it's like to play things that are awkwardly written for my instrument or boring or, you know, too much going on. And I feel desperate, you know, all those things. I think about that as I write music for other people. Mm-hmm. And you've, at this point, you've written several pieces for a brass quintet. I know you have a brass trio and um, you've uh-huh. got two Latin dances for horn and piano. So how did you get start writing for brass and for horn? Well, um, I got to my fifth year as my undergrad and I had never written a note for brass instrument. I thought, okay, this is my last year. I should do <laughs> something for brass. So I was studying with Stephen Gritch, um, who had been a trombone player. He was, you know, my composition professor at heart that year. I thought, well, this would be the time to write something for brass. So um, I, I remember I annoyed him a little bit at my, my first lesson um, because um, I didn't bring anything in for him. And I said, well, I said, I don't know brass at all. So I spent the week listening to music. 
And he said, okay, well, make sure you have something for next week. Um, <laughs> but now that I think back, you know, he maybe could have talked about how to write for brass and things like that. You know, because I think he didn't know quite, he wasn't quite sure what to do with the lesson with a student who comes in with no music, but okay, that's that. Anyway, um, so I spent a week just listening to brass quintets. I also had recently, I think, taken like a 16th century counterpoint class. And so I ended up with this piece that kind of sounds like 16th century counterpoint a bit. Uh, okay, more than a bit. Passacaglia. And <laughs> right. that was that was my first time writing for brass. And fortunately, it worked. You know, I went with something like a, a texture, a style of writing that works well on brass. And that piece was, to my surprise, really embraced by a bunch of brass players. So um, I wrote it my last year at heart, and it was premiered at New England Conservatory. That's where I went out for my master's in composition. And there was a little competition for a piece that would be chosen to be performed by the Honors Brass Quintet at NEC. And my piece was chosen and that's how it was um, you know, premiered there. Of course, a fantastic premiere. And um, some people started hearing, you know, about my writing. Um, the first time it was like really widely used for something was uh, at I went on to do a doctorate so two years at NEC for my master's and I went on for a doctorate at Boston University and at VU it was the Empire Brass at that time oh yes fantastic <laughs> resource for me and that really made more of a mark on me as a composer than any composition lesson that I took at VU I think um, anyway you know, so I was a, an Empire Brass groupie I would go to, not just their <laughs> concerts, but also their master classes. And I learned so much about what works well and what's a little more challenging on brass. You know, in a way, when you're hearing just the very top, like hearing the Empire Brass guys themselves, they're going to make everything sound easy. But if I'm listening, right, but if I'm listening to, say, an undergrad group and there's some things that are a little challenging, that's where you really hear, okay, this is what's challenging because like horn players split that note or, or whatever it is. That's, you know, I was really focusing on these things and I learned a lot how to write idiomatically for brass that way. So that that was really a huge part of my education that was just, as we'd say in New Orleans, lanyap. Lanyap is um, a word that means uh, something you get for free, something unexpected free. So that was my lanyap at uh, Boston University. Anyway, um, I, have, I started writing a piece for a friend at BU named Dennis Klophaus, he had asked me, oh, would you write a brass quintet for my group? And I started writing a piece. He premiered it in a master class for the Empire Brass. They heard my music. And one day I got a call from Jeff Kerno. He said, hey, take everything you've written for brass and come to Tanglewood this summer and, you know, or, or send it to me so we can, you know, do it at Tanglewood. Because, of course, they had the Empire Brass seminar mm -hmm. at, you know, at Tanglewood. So this Pasacaglia became the set piece for at least two years there. You know, every group, every student group there in that program played the Pasacaglia because it was cool. yeah, it was easy enough that, you know, the lowest level of high school group, I mean, low, I shouldn't say low, you know, relatively the least advanced, the youngest group, right. they could play it. But of course, it's also playable for everyone on up. So that was a good set piece for everyone. And I was like, really? Oh, my God. You know, that was that was a huge break for me. So it was a huge boost in confidence for me. You know what? Like these professional players find my music useful for something. You know, it was really great. I, you know, they invited me out and I came and I listened to a few groups playing and made some comments. And at that time, I think my comments were like, 
oh my God, you sound awesome. Because I wasn't <laughs> used to listening to brass, so I don't know what can be improved or what not. And I remember um, Jeff was there and he said, well, you know, he, he was he was trying to draw some comments out of me, some that would be constructive criticism. And of course, as a seasoned brass professional and teacher, he knew what could be improved. But for me, it was just, I was just so bowled over. And, and now I'm a very different musician and I have listened to, I've worked with brass, I've coached brass a lot. So I now know, you know, okay, we need more breath support or, you know, tuning and, and all these other, you know, aspects that I'm much more sensitive to. So that was a big learning experience for me. And as I said, it was a real boost to my confidence. Okay, I can write something that's useful. And that's really important to me as a composer. I am more interested in writing music that is useful to people than something that's like, oh, this new theory of how to come up with the notes. And, you know, I have to use take out my calculator and I'm going to take this. Okay, I shouldn't make fun of the people who, there are a lot of composers who um, they very sincerely believe like this is the important, this is the way to write mm. music. And I'm just the opposite of that. We'll just say, as you probably figured out, that's why you maybe got <laughs> me on your podcast right now. Right. You know, <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's nice to teach their own, you know, with their compositions. Yeah. And, that's, and, yeah. <laughs> and I think both sort of camps of composers can learn from each other because oh, maybe, like the more academic camp, you know, maybe they're discovering new ways of playing the instrument that wouldn't necessarily occur to me. But then I hear mm -hmm. that on a concert and it's like, okay, that's not my style of piece, but actually that technique I could maybe use in my own piece and, you know, incorporate it in this way. Right. Which I sometimes mm -hmm, do. Yeah, and one of the things that I love is that you've written a piece specifically for an elementary brass quintet, right? That's the fanfares for a young group. That's right. Yes. Yes. I think that is um, something. Let's talk about that a little bit, because I feel like most composers don't tend to write for anything other than in their mind, the perfect ensemble who's going to perform something, you know, advanced and challenging. So how did you get started oh, on that? Thank you for bringing up. This is maybe my favorite topic ever. I think that Amazing. developing developing musicians, little kids they need great music to play. They need good stuff, you know, and not just arrangements or what. And so the way I came into writing that piece was this, um, because I'm a violinist, that was my natural way of getting into the world of writing educational music. And I started writing string orchestra pieces for elementary school kids that age or that level of development. And um, I got this one piece I wrote, Medieval Scenes, it got accepted to be published by the FJH Music Company. And at that, this is around 1999 or so, 2000. And at that time, FJH was known as a piano catalog, but they didn't really have much of a an instrumental catalog, but they brought in Brian Belmagus, which is a name that some listeners will definitely know. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> an incredible composer of brass and you know, mm -hmm. winds and string music, all this. Anyway, he was just a young guy at that point, fresh out of a master's degree. Uh, so he was around 23 or so, you know, and I got to know him and I, he accepted this piece and um, he said, well, what else have you written? And um, actually, no, I'm misremembering this a little bit. So I should say the first um, way that I got in with FJH was through a piano piece. Oh, yes, that's what it was. So I have, I have to correct my memory here. I had a little piano piece that they accepted and it didn't do well with the piece because with the FJH clientele, because both hands were like the first movement starts with both hands up in the treble clef. And that was weird, mm -hmm. you know, like it was just not from the standpoint of 
your average piano teacher who's looking for like the five finger position and it was playable but it was weird looking to them and they hated that i mean like there was actually this website of I want to like say like hate mail for it, but there was this website for okay. I'm totally getting away from brass instruments, but no, that's I, think, I, I find this interesting and kind of funny. Um, so, the piano adventures was the the piano method that FJH was selling at that point, and they made their fame and really got started as a, a publishing company that way. And there was a online sort of chat group this is back in 2000 for piano teachers and there was something called the new release club where whenever fjh published a new piece they would send a copy to about a thousand teachers to say hey check this out maybe you'll want to buy more copies to do with your students well and and so there's this chat room sort of for um the piano teachers so what do you think of this piece what do you think oh yeah this one's kind of nice i like the pretty tuned and then they're like, well, what do you think of bernofsky australia suite people are like i don't know what to do with that piece and you know and some one person even used like a profanity or they used like you know hashtag or like like all the little um characters you use instead of this is a piece of you know and then all characters you use instead of profanity i'm like i actually wow. found it amusing i love getting feedback on my music, good or bad. And my takeaway from that was not that this is a bad piece, but this is a piece that, well, for this person, it is bad, you know, and so not everyone's going to like my stuff. At the same time, I, I felt a little bit invincible because I had just gotten this great review from this uh, Clavier magazine, which is like, I don't know, it's like out of England or something. And it got this check rating, which is they only put the checks on like the very finest or, or I was like reading. So what is a check rating? And, you know, it was like highly complimentary anyway. So it's like, well, okay, but Clavier magazine, like my face anyway. So, but that was my first like uh, introduction into FJH and their introduction to me and uh, my piano editor there her name is carol Matz, and she's a wonderful composer arranger um editor and now a friend of mine and she you know liked that piece a lot she accepted worked on it and um we became friends and i had made this compilation cd of my stuff and i sent that to her and there's a brass quintet on that she handed that cd to brian balmagis who was then the 23 year old you know just getting started guy in music industry he heard this sweep for brass quintet, which is a five movement, pretty, no, it's four. I can't remember. I'd have to count it. Anyway, but it's <laughs> it's my most challenging brass quintet, like college level. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he contacted me, said, you know, I heard your sweep for brass quintet. I think it's a really good piece and it deserves to be published. Like, what? Okay. And he said, well, I'm just starting out. We're trying out a chamber music catalog for FJH. So um you know, what do you think? I said, sure. He said, but I'd like to balance it out. I'd like a couple lower level pieces too. So can you write me something that's, you know, grade, what did he say? Like a grade one level and a grade two level or grade two and three or some earlier level pieces. And I thought, mm -hmm. well, okay. And then he told me a little bit, you know, make sure that you stay in the staff or for, you know, no, don't have any um, rhythmic division smaller than an eighth note. So he gave me a couple uh you know limitations guidelines, guidelines. Yeah. thank you that's much better for guidelines yeah <laughs> and and at that time it felt like a limitation but I got better and better at it and I've done a lot of writing for different levels especially of string orchestra music and now if someone says okay you write me a 2.5 piece you know I pretty much know what it's going to be and the music will come out that way and it's not like I have to dumb it down or change it but the thing that I create in the first place is going to fit with those guidelines because I sort of internalized 
that anyway but i think that the ability to write educational music is a skill above and beyond the things that are normally taught in college composition programs and mm -hmm. you actually need to know more to write appropriately for these it's it's really hard what's easy is just putting all kinds of crazy techniques on the page and handing it to a an on a new music ensemble who will play it for you i mean they might fake it they might grumble <laughs> behind the scenes but not tell you because oh the great right. composer you know you can't like talk to the genius about that and those genius composers are all buying being taught by their teachers that oh you know those musicians those performers they're always grumbling about this yeah but just see in 10 years that'll become a standard technique and everyone will be playing that and that sometimes is the case but not always and i think it's opened up a lot of this sort of Pandora's box of unplayable stuff that scares away musicians. And there are so many, so many performers who don't like new music because they've had experiences with these pieces that are just not reasonably written for their instrument. And that I've played several of those yeah. myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I did too. You know, my, my last year at heart, I played in the new music ensemble there. So I was given all sorts of stuff. It's like, okay, this really hurts my hand or this is not going to work. Or, you know, and you're told to do your best with it. Like, okay, I'll right. fake it and do something. And very often the composer, like they don't always know that you're not playing exactly what's on the page, mm -hmm. which is also, you know, not super flattering or doesn't speak that right. highly of their, you know, I, I think as a composer, you should be completely responsible for every sound that is in your piece. You know, like you should know if someone plays the wrong note, you should know that. And if you don't know that, it means you don't know your piece well enough. And maybe your piece doesn't have enough. Um, I, I'm not th thinking of the right word here, but, you know, you're, I want in my music, if there's a wrong note that's played, I want it to sound like a wrong note. You know, I don't want my notes to be so arbitrary that if someone plays a wrong note, you know. Was it? Yeah, you just write it off. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or you don't know it is because like any note could be any other note. Like that is not the kind of piece that I ever want to write. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have found uh, in my, my biggest pet peeve in new, mu new music composition is really more um, about notation, which is funny. Mm -hmm. I, my biggest thing is when people write in bass clef for horn, things that would normally be oh. in the staff when it's, when we, when bass clef's appropriate, great. But when I've got me like reading seven ledger lines in bass clef, I'm like, I don't oh. know how to do that. I'm sorry. I, it's a limitation of my own that I can't read that many ledger lines, but not for me, but yeah. No, so I, I always appreciate when people take the time to, to talk to the musicians that they're writing for and, and yes. find out what worked and what didn't. Mm -hmm. Yes. And if it's not for you, it's also not for every other horn player. No one wants to read. <laughs> no, I mean, I, as a violinist, I can't read seven ledger lines. I don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah. It's really, that's one of the things I talk to my composition students about. Talk to your performers and get mm -hmm. feedback and, and like, don't scare them away. Like, let them know that you really want to know about them. It's, performers love talking to composers. Like, we we oh, need yeah. we need more of that. We need more of this dialogue back and forth. And then composers are going to write better for the instrumentalists, and the instrumentalists are going to let composers know, like, you know, I can play sixteenth notes fine, and I would love to here. Give me something mm -hmm. with you know, and it's it's just going to be good for everyone. The composers are going to have more people playing their music, and performers are going to get more pieces that are better written that they would want to play. Right, then we can branch out and not only have horn pieces that are written about being in the forest, which are great, but oh, having oh, other God, subject topics is always great. Yeah, so many oh. new music pieces. And it, it's not a complaint because they're fun, but, you know, we like to, to try out some new stuff, too. So I always <laughs> love that.
Um, and yeah, and talking about the beginning pieces, I think um, the, I guess the real challenge, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, is you know any any composer can go to an instrumentation book and say, okay, here's what the range of this instrument is according to this book. But then yeah. knowing what a beginner could play yes. and and the challenges they're going to face is maybe where the real struggle comes with that. And I guess the only way you would learn how those struggles are is to spend time with beginner students on that instrument or other yeah. teachers maybe. <laughs> yes. Um both of those. So write something, hand it to a beginner and see what they can play and what they can't. Fortunately, the most of the publishing companies of educational music are now making available by putting online their um, guidelines for the different grade levels. So you can actually find it like very often on the website of, uh, I won't list any particular ones, but I, I know I, there, I know the number of mine, my publishers have this, you know, it'll say like, grade level guidelines and it'll say, you know, here's the range. And so you can actually, like someone who's starting out, you can actually just look at these and say, okay, nothing's smaller than an eighth note and keep it in the staff. And um, I know FJH even has guidelines for syncopations. Like you can have one syncopation, but not syncopations tied to another syncopation in this grade level, but then you can have two syncopations in a row in that grade level. And um, so it's pretty specific, um, but talking to a player is is the best way to get started because everyone's had their time when they were beginning as a horn player or a whatever player, you know, so they're probably going to remember or in looking at the music too, you know, so sometimes I'll say, hey, can you show me a, you know, send me a screenshot or whatever of like a piece that you're playing so I can just look at it and mm -hmm. then make something that's a similar, you know, I've, I've done that more than once just like let me just see what you're playing right now so i can mm -hmm. get the ballpark of you know range difficulty amount of rests in there that's mm -hmm. another thing that was an important lesson for me to learn because of course as a violinist we don't have to breathe as you know breathe but it doesn't affect our playing so for me right. perfectly normal a piece four pages of 16th notes with no okay no problem like with no rest we can do that and so mm -hmm. that was one of the things that i had to to learn, I, you know, <laughs> I have written some like solo pieces where say, I'm sorry, but you've got to give me like a couple bars rest right there, you know, and all right, make the piano right, part My face is going to fall off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I remember um, of my suite for brass quintet. Um, that was kind of early in, I mean, I know more now than I did when I brought, wrote that piece. And I have a slow movement called Melancholy Waltz. And I'm very happy with how the music sounds, but to quote one brass player said, yeah, that movement's really a blow. Yes, that is exactly what <laughs> and, we say. I just finished playing a Bruckner thing the other day and we're like, oh, that's a blow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is a term I hadn't heard used that way, you know, being a string player. So it's that's also been like kind of charming and fun for me, like to learn like the brass lingo. You know, you guys have your own language that you speak in sometimes. Oh yeah. Half the time I'm sitting here going, hmm, my chops don't feel quite right yeah. today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I know chops. I know. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. Yeah. And that's another thing that I think about, you know, like you can't stay high for too long because you're going to blow their chops and things like, you know, and exactly if right. I write a piece that doesn't consider that no one's going to play it. No one wants mm -hmm. to get up on stage and sound like a bad player. And mm -hmm. I, I wish that composition teachers at the collegiate level thought about that and talked to their students about that. Instead, they'll say, oh, they'll get it. Just, you know, Everyone like wants to fancy themselves as a genius and oh, in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, everyone's going to realize what a genius I am because I'm pushing the envelope of, you know, technique or whatever, but eh, right. sometimes that, that works, sometimes not. 
Well, and that term genius is so problematic anyways. I mean, how does one even describe what a genius is? I mean, if we Yeah. have music we like and music we don't like, and you know, everybody always brings up Beethoven and I sit here and I'm like, you know, I, I can get down with Beethoven six and seven symphonies, but that doesn't mean I want to listen to his second piano concerto four times in a row. You know, Yeah, it's just, sure. it, it's that whole genius thing. It's, it's a big red flag for me when someone tries to describe themselves that way. Yes, ab absolutely. <laughs> and I think it's the difference between a composer composing for the performer, which is what it sounds like you do versus a composer composing for themselves. And then of course, there's going to be part of that, you know, you're composing what you want to write, but you know, you, you definitely seem to take in mind the person who's actually communicating the music to the audience. Um, there's, there's a three-way relationship, Yeah. I think, that not everyone considers. Yeah, that's well said. <laughs> Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when you start to write a piece, wh how, where's your starting point? Um, do you sit down at a piano or are you with manuscript paper or Sibelius or? Um, I start out thinking about um, what I what I need to write. So who's the person? What's the level of difficulty? Um, and then depending on what it is, so if it's a solo violin piece, I will start by trying not to think too hard and just playing whatever comes to my fingers. So with my violin, you know, playing on it. Um, if it's brass, I will sit down at a piano keyboard. If it's, let's say, a brass quintet. And I'll start out with maybe a sonority. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll, without thinking, that that's a big part of my process, not thinking. And I'll probably come back to that many times in our discussion today. You know, I'll just let my fingers fall on keys. It's like, eh, I don't like the sound of that. I move one finger. To, oh, okay, that's kind of a cool chord. Then I'll imagine brass sounds. Okay, do I want this slow, fast, short notes? You know what? Um, And I'll have that all sort of bubbling, hopefully in my subconscious. My best music comes from my subconscious, and I try to stay there as much as possible when I'm perform uh, when I'm composing. And then I will, you know, try to imagine brass, the sound of brass, brass players playing those notes that I now have my fingers on on the keyboard. Um, and then there's, you know, it goes. Sometimes it's more completely in my head. It's like, okay, if if I play. The, the sonority, I can imagine it then being repeated five times. Or so. You know, I don't need to play it five times to know. So to know what it'll sound like, play by brass, so I can imagine that. And so my process is some imagination in my head, some playing the notes on the piano. Um, but I do work on the piano generally, unless I'm writing a solo line piece. Um, then I write it down on paper. That's been, that's been very important in my process because when I write on paper, um, I'm not going to lose the thought because, oh, I clicked on the wrong bar or like, you know, like some technical thing like that. You know, I can get right on paper. And um, I often second guess myself, but second guessing is not always the best thing for me. Um, so sometimes I'll second guess myself and say, no, no, it should be this chord instead. I will lightly erase the first chord and then write the second, you know, this is going to be the new chord. And then two days later, I'll go back and say, you know, that first chord was better. And I can go back to it because it's still lightly on the paper. So that's something that Finale doesn't give you unless, so Finale is what I've been working in, by the way. Um, that's something that you can't see unless you save multiple files, but you're not going to look at like five versions of the same piece, probably. I mean, I don't. So anyway, so I do write on paper and I usually get too antsy and I don't write the whole movement down before but I will start putting it in finale it's like if I have a good two pages of it I will start putting the finale just so I can clarify it so I don't have to recopy recopying pencil on paper is time that I don't think is well spent for me so I will you know put the first two pages into finale 
and then I will keep going. And so then I will like play, do the playback from the finale, keeping in mind what is magically possible in finale and what is not in the real world. That is also really important. Um, mm -hmm. We've probably all been like on the receiving end of pieces that sounded great in finale, but are actually unplayable by humans. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but, but I know I have enough um, experience hearing, working with musicians that that is not, that's not an issue for me. So I can hear through a bad MIDI and I can hear it's like, okay, that is not going to be playable. I definitely need to put a couple rests in there and things like that. Yeah. Finale doesn't get tired. So you can give, <laughs> you know, Finale will do a great job performing a uh, all 16th note piece for horn, right. right? That's 10 minutes long. Yeah, we can do that fine. And without yeah. any fluctuations in tempo. How nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, perfectly right on it, right on the money there. Yeah. So, um, it's kind of a torturous process. I think most composers would say that. Um, it's like performing where your mental state has a lot to do with how successful you are as a performer. For me, the same thing in composing. So if I am like super critical of myself and totally second guessing, well, what if that sounds stupid? And no, I, I will get nowhere. So I try to get into this sort of non-judgmental zone where I'm not thinking about too hard, just like let something come out and then write it all down and then sleep on it. That's a big part of my process. Sleep on it so the next day I will have a sort of fresh or a slightly fresher impression mm -hmm. of it. You know, does it sound, do I like this still a day later? Or does it sound like, no, that really was bad. Okay. All right. Throw that out. Start again. But um, I'm over the years of being a composer, I've gotten better at finding out what works for me. And what works for me is just letting come from my subconscious. That is my best music. And for all the composers who think, oh, well, it needs to fit this pattern and have explanations behind it, all those patterns and explanations, they're there mm -hmm. because my subconscious did it. You know, I think a lot of composers don't give enough credit to what we already know, what we can do in our subconscious. You know, I have imitation and, and all these other ways that some composers and theorists will use to measure the quality of music. I I will go back to a piece that I wrote subconsciously and or largely subconsciously and I will find those things in there. So I'm like, okay, you know what? It, it's that piece is good. It came out of my subconscious. It was easier. I'm happier with it. And that so that is the method I try to use as much as possible. I really like that. It's it's almost like reverse well it's not really reverse analysis but you're, you're letting the music happen and then people can come along behind later and say oh this is the technique that made that music so cool to listen to but it's you're not aiming to do that technique necessarily in that moment it just kind of flows out of you exactly and i love that you use the word reverse because i think of music that is written starting out with the analysis and the technique and then using that to generate the piece i consider that a reverse way of writing music. If we mm -hmm. think back to like professional musicians have all had their counterpoint, right? And right in the style of Bach. Do you think Bach was thinking of rules? No, he wrote these chorales because that was his church gig. He had to write, you know, a new setting mm -hmm. for each week. Um, and he wrote what sounded good. And because it was so successful, then theorists later on came back and said, okay, let's try to see what he did and see if we can come up with a set of rules. And if we follow them, it'll be in his style. Mm -hmm. But that's I have to make complete apologies to my counterpoint teacher because I just remember being so mad that I wasn't allowed to write parallel fifths when I thought they sounded oh, cool. <laughs> you know? yeah. I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> 
I love parallel fifths and they do sound cool. In fact, I wrote a solo violin sonata a couple of years back and I have this long section in parallel fifths because I love the way it sounds. And you probably now know the reason why parallel fifths don't work well in the context of the Bach because it it sounds, it becomes part of the, the timbre. You know, it doesn't sound like, well, they talk about, oh, you don't have independence of lines because really like if you think about how a pipe organ works, that is like a bunch of, Closer to not, not quite a sine tone, but you know, a very pale pitch that gets layered to make the different kinds of sounds and you know, the different stops on the organ. And a lot of them will just have become parallel fits. And that becomes a different sound, you know, the what Hosanna sound and sort of the, the grate, or you know, all these different stops on the organ. Um yeah, so that's why it, it happens not to work, even though it's a really cool sound. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I've definitely used that in pieces. And when people say, oh, Bach breaks the rule. No, it wasn't a rule then. You know, he just did something that was out of what he usually did, but it still sounded good. I don't remember which chorale it was, but I once found one of his chorales where he went from a five chord to a four chord, Ooh. which is, you're not supposed to do, but it <laughs> sounded it fine. It sounded absolutely fine. So why not do that? Mm -hmm. But don't do that on your, your counterpoint test. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> we'll get marked down for that. <laughs> I'm going to be haunted by Mr. Blessinger. I'm so sorry. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but counterpoint, it's great training for a composer, you know, for discipline. And um, I use counterpoint a lot in my music. Mm -hmm. I love counterpoint. Oh, it's one of my favorite things when it sneaks into places I'm not expecting it. Well, like I'm a big musicals fan. So I love mm -hmm. when a counterpoint song comes into a musical. I'm like, oh, this is my favorite part. You know? <laughs> oh, okay. So how would you uh, characterize your compositional language? You just said you like current counterpoint, but what else do you feel is in your essential style? Oh my gosh. Um, and that's a broad question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, so what do I do actually? Let's see. Um, <laughs> I'm very sound oriented. I love tunes more than, I'm more tune melody oriented than I think a lot of modern composers are. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a big fan of opera and I'll talk about that more later if you happen to ask me when I'm working on it. Oh. Oh, and um, oh, I will definitely ask you that. <laughs> okay. And so there's a lot of opera that's being written today that doesn't have obvious arias and like super memorable bits in it that you'd call, oh yeah, that's like that aria. It doesn't have things that you would that a singer might excerpt out and say, oh, I'm going to do that aria on my recital this mm -hmm. year. You know. Anyway, but I am very much about melody, and I think that there's a lot of music that is very successful that's not about melody but that's that's a big part of what's important to me as a composer um as you know playability um i guess i would be described as a tonal composer um i would hope that if there's a wrong note that gets played that people will know it it's like are you sure you want that <laughs> you know like you know that's that's to me a sign of the kind of piece that i want to be writing um i think other people could probably describe my music better than i can because i'm so close to it <laughs> Yes, it does become deeply personal at that point, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like describe yourself as a person. I'm like, I don't know, I think I'm fine. But, you know, like other people can say, oh, that person, then they could say like 12 characteristics that, right. you know, you don't see when you're so close to yourself. Well, that's why writing a bio for a website is so hard. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, I hate that. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. I do it for my friends because they're like, I can't yeah. do this. Can you come up with something? I'm like, well, yeah, tell me what you did yesterday and I'll write it in. You know? <laughs> oh, that's great. But so um, this is my, my fun composition question here. So who is your favorite composer besides yourself? But it could be oh, you. <laughs> no, it's definitely not me. I mean, it's like, not, I, it's like, well, I want to listen to the music I enjoy. I'm not going to put on something that I wrote. But so my favorite <laughs> composer, um, I don't have any single one. I'm just going to name some of my 
top, right. I won't even say top times, people come to mind. I love mm-hmm. Bach. Um, I just, I, oh, I can't even say why. And I actually don't care why. I just know that I love <laughs> Bach's music. Beethoven, I love Mendelssohn. His octet was fantastic. He was only like 17 when he wrote this incredible, okay. Um, and that has everything that I love in me, you know, it's got passion, beauty, counterpoint, great instrumental writing. Okay. Um, Mozart, I'm a big fan of his his operas right now, especially. Um, mm-hmm. Living Composer, and I love Ravel very much. Mm. Um, yeah, he's a string quartet. Ah, oh, fantastic. Oh, yeah, I and, love the string quartet. Yeah. Um, living Composers, um, Valerie Coleman. Amanda love Valerie. Hart. Yeah. She's a friend yeah. of mine. <laughs> oh, me too. Yes. <laughs> um, we went to school. I was a doctoral student and I met her. She was an undergrad at Boston University. Oh, yeah. And I remember I have this memory of her. She was playing in the orchestra. I was playing in the orchestra, I guess. And I met her there. And I guess we found out that the other one, even though we're both instrumentalists there, we were both composers too. And, and she just had this like spark in her eye or something yes. like this is someone who's going to be something like I. Oh, she's she's so special. There's some kind of like hidden fire in her that yes. when she talks about music it is so inspiring and just makes everybody drawn to her like a moth to a flame yeah you know? yeah <laughs> and i could not be happier that like the kind of success that oh wow she's incredible she's at the very top now and good for her and she really is. deserves she's wonderful um someday when she has five minutes i'll get her on this podcast but yeah now, she, yeah she's all over the place <laughs> right right isn't she working teaching full-time at she is she at manis oh, she's Manus at manis now. now yeah good for yeah. her oh that's i know so great yeah and she's another person who came from a performance background into mm-hmm. you know and performers really embrace her music because she knows what people like to play and she writes wonderfully Absolutely. For, you know um jim stevenson is a dear friend of mine and i really admire his music and i have no idea how he turns out the volume <laughs> and I mean quantity but also quality of music that he does um also another perform you know he was a performer first trumpet player mm-hmm. um gosh I okay so I've already listed like nine composers there so I'll stop but I'll just say that I don't have any <laughs> single favorite one and I do enjoy different ones different ways just like different flavors of ice cream you know just because I love mm-hmm. one doesn't mean that's the only one I'm gonna you know the only flavor I'm gonna <laughs> eat Sometimes it depends on the weather, who my favorite composer mm-hmm. is. I was like, the other day I was grumpy and I was like, okay, we're going to go listen to the 4A Requiem. That's oh. that's the mood for today. <laughs> I love the 4A Requiem. Yeah. Oh, it's gorgeous. That and it gorgeous. really lifted my mood. I was like, this is what I needed to, to feel today and we're moving on. So <laughs> Yeah. Music has so much power, but you know, that it can actually make a person happy. That is just, mm-hmm. I just unbelievable to me. I mean, it's believable and unbelievable, you know to me yes um and that's part of my attraction to being a composer like you can really you can make people happy you know sometimes I will mm-hmm. get people I don't know writing me from like Australia or something like, oh my my hi my name is so and so I just love playing this piece there's so much fire in it. you know and it's like wow I can make a piece I mean I can make a person happy by the piece I wrote you know that's like an incredible gift for me to be able to to do that to have like the joy of knowing that I can make a difference for someone else I mean being a composer is not for the faint of heart it is it is not easy it's very frustrating you know i'm not getting rich from it that's for sure but (laughs) but but just knowing that like someone else can be maybe a bit happy or something like Mm -hmm. from something you wrote that's just that's probably the the main reason that i do it like on top of all the other reasons yeah i mean i i 
there's something in your music that's resonating with performers that way because I haven't been to a conference with brass players in the last, I don't know, four or five years where there hasn't been one of your pieces mm. on the program. So, you know, it, it, clearly it's it's making the musicians who are performing it feel something that they are enjoying themselves and want to perform it again. And I think that's why most of us get into music is because at some point it makes us feel something mm -hmm. and we liked how that felt and then we're here trying to replicate it over and over and over. <laughs> so, you know, that's always a yeah. good sign. Yeah. So on the business side of composition, since you mentioned, you know, the, how difficult it can be, um, how do you typically get connected with people who want to commission your music? Do they reach out to you or is it a consortium kind of thing? Actually, I've never done a consortium before. Um, I've also never had any success, or I should say, I've almost never had any success reaching out to people and then they're listening to my stuff and, oh, then they like it. They, then they want to have something to do with me. That almost never happens. I mean, I think a composer is your own worst PR agent or something. You know, <laughs> because people assume that, you know, they don't, they're not necessarily going to, I mean, why should people take your word for it that you're a good composer, right? So I just have to hope someone else will hear my piece and then a piece of mine and then contact me. Um, and I've had a lot of, I mean, the, the last couple of years, lots of brass commissions coming my way. And I have been actually turning them all down because of this opera that I'm writing right now. We're supposed to talk about that later, so I won't get into it. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I I have had better luck, I guess, just meeting people, meeting people, them wanting to hear my music or, but, but like anything I say about my piece almost has no value because it came out of my mouth. So really anything like me getting in with FJH, which then led to this, you know, huge, for me, the flourishing amount of music. That's a really weird way of saying that. But the, 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 I've written a large volume of music of string um, orchestra. Like I have like 30, at least 30 pieces for like kitty string orchestra. Um, and that happened through word of mouth because someone else passed on a CD with my breast content, you know, to Brian Valmages, and then he said, okay, well, like, what pieces of you, can, you know, and then he started encouraging me. So that was a word of mouth thing. So I have definitely been on the receiving end of the kindness of other people who will mention my name to someone else. Hey, you should really check out her music. Um, and that's why I try to, when I can, lift up other composers too. So sometimes if I come upon a piece like, I think this is really good and this deserves to be published, you know, I might actually send that to an editor saying, hey, you might want to check this out. That's so and, great. I mean, yeah, yeah as, as when we have any kind of, I hesitate to use the word power, but maybe it's more of um, clout in, mm -hmm. in the musical zeitgeist, you know, uh, that's, I think that's our responsibility is to try and uplift people who are on the, the younger or, you know, less experienced end of it to just try and keep, or the less known, maybe. Yes, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the less known end of it to try and share it with everybody else. That's the whole point of this podcast is, is to be like, hey, you might know this name. Here's another person you could know, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate, like, that's part of where I am, how I got to where I am today. And I, yeah, I do what I can to help others. Um, I still sometimes try, like, I, I wrote a professor, I won't get too narrow, I won't narrow this down, <laughs> but I wrote a professor at a major school recently about this violin sonata that I've written, which I think is very good. And I, um, violinists are always playing the Bach solo sonatas. Why wow, they're fantastic pieces written by someone who played the violin and like the, every possible way you can analyze them. They're just fabulous, you know, uh, and, but there's room for something else. 
these pieces will have like a saraband in them that, that no one knows today how to dance a saraband so maybe no you know <laughs> the teachers who are you know teaching maybe they would be open to something that's a little more recent not instead of it but just in addition you know and mm -hmm. what inspired me was I had gone to a a violin recital and there was another piece you know another box and on it's like wow one of those again and how tired must these professors be of teaching those the same eight sonatas over and over to like all their students um so you know I wrote to some professor and I said oh would you be interested in checking out the solo sonata you know it uses a lot of the same techniques but it's more contemporary language um never heard back from the person and that is usually what happens you know I'm not saying oh my God, I didn't hear back. How is that? No, that is the default. The default is that I don't hear back from them. They do. People do not like hearing from composers. And I think, I, I can't prove it, but I'm guessing that a lot of them have been scared away by hearing unplayable, unpleasant to them, new music. Mm -hmm. And that's why they don't want to check mine out in the first place, which really bugs me. But okay, that's just part of how things work these days. Yeah, yeah, that's too bad. It's almost like, um, well, it's not even almost, it just is that people are missing out on all of this great music. And it's because they were the one who was approached instead of hearing it somewhere out in the world and going, oh, I like that. Mm -hmm. It's it's really too bad. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's quite possible that they receive 100 requests a week from composers. Oh, I have this great piece for your instrument. Could you check it out? You know, right. and, and they do and, it, and they hate it. You know, mm -hmm. um, that that is quite possible. I've heard conductors say that like, we do not have time to listen to all these pieces being sent us. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's too bad. It's that we're so inundated. But, yeah, yeah. Now, do you have a process for getting your music performed or do people just kind of perform it and then tell you later or never tell you? <laughs> Some of those last two. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't let me see if there's a OK, if there's a piece that I think really needs to be out there because I think it's useful and good. I'll talk, talk about my trumpet concerto for a minute. So this is a piece I wrote over 20 years ago. It was my doctoral dissertation and um, it was yeah, for Boston University. So trumpet and orchestra, three movements, fast, slow, fast, you know, along the lines of the kind of thing that people do and that you, what you're expecting from a concerto. Um, and the person who helped me write it, this, the trumpet player I work with, Gary Peterson, wonderful musician, incredible trumpet player. Um, he he then got a job. He's principal trumpet at the Bergen Philharmonic in Norway. Oh, cool. And he had the opportunity to play a concerto with a summer festival out there. And he said, hey, Lauren, I'd like to play your piece. I'm like, oh my God, fantastic. So I got the orchestral premiere of this piece. Well, in 20 years, that piece had not been played again with orchestra. Um, it had been published for, you know, by Theodore Presser, right? Big publisher. It had been published in a version for trumpet and piano, which had been um, commissioned by Mary Thornton, who was a very important person in my life because she's Ugh. a wonderful trumpet player. And just like she makes, she she's the one who um, you have to thank for my trio for brass. She commissioned oh, that. how great. Well, she did her dissertation on this trumpet concerto, and she commissioned me to write a piano reduction of the orchestral part, which totally opened up, you know, the possibilities for this to be done on recitals. Great. But in 20 years, it had not been performed again with orchestra. And I mean, it's not like too shabby a piece, I guess, because last summer it was, to my amazement, chosen as the required repertoire for the ITG. 
solo competition. So a lot of people learned about the piece, but still has not been performed with orchestra. Um, I sometimes will play in the local civic orchestra in Bloomington, Indiana, where I live, called Bloomington Symphony. And um, I was talking to, you know, I was really trying to push it, like, to to conductors, like, you know, I have this piece. It hasn't been premiered in this country on with orchestra yet, not in this country, 20 years, you know, and he, so I did push a little, it's like, I'll, I'll keep playing in your orchestra if, if, you know, if you do this piece. I didn't say that that way, but that's how I thought of it. And like, so he, he did put it on, you know, and I was, so that is, that is a, for me, increasingly rare example of me trying to push a piece getting on, because usually it doesn't work. Now he had already done some of my music before. He knew me, he respected me. Um, mm-hmm. So we had a good you had that working project. relationship already. Exactly, yes. Mm-hmm. If I cold call someone, it's almost guaranteed, excuse me, it's almost guaranteed that it won't work. So mm-hmm. I now almost exclusively, um, yeah, I, I let other people, I mean, there's enough buzz about my musical, enough people have heard it that it gets performed. I was, every once in a while, I will go through just to see, you know, what is out there, who's playing what. And, you know, I, there were, there have been 20 performances of pieces of mine this month. You know, oh, and, how great. And, yeah, it's like, okay, like in Thailand and um, Australia. I just found out about yesterday. When this, Australia. So, yeah, my stuff is out there now. And partly because of publishers and with brass players, I think there's a lot of word of mouth. Like people mm-hmm. go to a recital, they hear a trio for brass. It's like, oh, okay. And they keep that in mind. And maybe later, a couple of years later, they're going to mention it to someone. They end up playing it. Who knows? So, yeah, word of mouth, I guess, is... Um, the main way that my music is sort of getting out there these days. And I love that it's published. I don't have to deal with, you know, mailing out copies, going to Kinko's or whatever. You know, that's right. Just, you're not self-publishing. Yeah. You're with yeah. the publishing company. Yeah. That's and nice. I'm, I'm also like lousy enough at self-promotion. I know this, so I'm not going to try, you know, but if I say, oh, you know, Boozy and Hawks publishes this piece, you know, <laughs> then I get a lot more, you know, what street cred or something like that. Especially right. As a woman composer, you know, that was really important to me. Like, who's going to take me seriously when they just meet me? Unless I say, well, you know, Hal Leonard or something publishes that piece or, you know. Right. Well, do you feel that you've had any, you know, challenges or or obstacles you've had to overcome being a woman composer? Okay. How much time do we have? Ah, (laughs) We have all the time in the world. Okay. All right. So um, make yourself comfortable. Um, All right. (laughs) Actually, I cannot, it's hard to prove it and give measurements, you know, in concrete measurements, but I can tell you a couple of things that make me think <laughs> this is what's going on. I think with the trumpet concerto, for instance, um, I think when trumpet players are given a chance to play, like let's say someone is invited to solo with a major orchestra, are they going to take a chance on a piece by a woman? No, if they've got like that one crack to solo with the New York Philharmonic, do you think they're going to do a piece? I mean, maybe they are, but it just usually doesn't happen. And I think that that is part of it. Um, this is a sort of disappointment and maybe it's not nice to talk about him this way, but I'll just like put this out there. So I was very fortunate that Roger Wazan um, was, he was teaching at Boston University when it was time to do the the reading of my dissertation piece there. And I said, hey, would you actually conduct this? You know, your student Gary Peterson is going to do the solo. And he accepted it. And, and after that, and I thought, oh, this is going to really launch the piece because I mean, Roger Voisin, come on, you know, former principal of trumpet at BSO, he's like really you known, respected as a performer and pedagogue, teaches at Tanglewood. Like this is like I've 
yes, this is, you know, me hitting the jackpot for, right? In after the performance, I mean, after the, the reading session, because it was not chosen to be performed at BU, but never mind that. Anyway, mm -hmm. after the reading session, he just turned to me and said, congratulations. And the orchestra was like applauding after every movement, which was usually doesn't happen in a reading session. They're usually like no. a polite, polite, slow clap, golf clap, whatever, you know. After right. you. But but they were like really applauding after each. I'm like, oh, I guess they like this. This is going well. But so was I never chose to do anything for the piece? He could have. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, it's not fair. Of me. Like he owes me nothing. And, but that would have been a time that like it something could have happened. And had I been chummier with him before, like someone who'd be out having a beer with him, which was not me at all. Um, and that's something also with, you know, women, you hear a lot of talk about of these, you know, brass quintets and competitions and festival, you know, and you see all these, the bros out there having a beer together, you know, because they're friends and that's how they operate and how they choose. Oh yeah. He's fun to have a beer with. We're gonna, you know, he's a great player too, of course. And we're going to bring him into, you know, sub for this or, or whatever it is. Um, so I am not, was not socially part of, you know, circles where that would end up in you know, resulting in performances and, and things like that. Um, once I was playing in a string quartet at the funeral of a Boston Symphony oboist. I don't recall the name. This was like 30 years ago. And it was just a gig that I did as a student because I did a lot of gigging to put myself through grad school. And um, there was someone named Robert Ripley um, who I actually encountered him because he was a former cellist, BSO cellist, and he was in charge of Tangle, the Tanglewood High School program, chamber music. So I met this guy before, but I didn't tell him that because he was, there's no reason he'd remember me. But anyway, <laughs> he, he, you know, was reading the members of the string quartet and thanking us and what, and, and, I, and he said, oh, so where are you in school? I said, oh, I'm at Boston University and I'm actually a doctor, doing a doctorate. I'm trying to be a composer. And he said, oh, well, keep scribbling. I'm like, keep scribbling like would you say that like oh, it's not it's condescending it's, it's to me very condescending mm -hmm. and so, like he just like summed me up it's like you couldn't do anything of value you're you're just scribbling your cute little notes or whatever because you're a girl right and, and so it's, and it's hard to to you're right it is hard to pinpoint that and say okay that's you know it's it's not blatantly you know misogynistic right. it's 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 a microaggression there and you're like yes okay. but it's a it's an indication of right he just assumes that i'm not gonna be good mm -hmm. like every composer had a time when they were 22 you know i was probably around 22 you know everyone had that you know beethoven once was 22 like uh, i don't know i don't know what kind of point i'm making but you can't necessarily um it's hard to measure it it's hard to prove it but then when you see you know, there's some pieces that I don't think are that great, but you see how the, like the the composers are chummy with the performers because they're the performer. You know, especially ten years ago, twenty three mm -hmm. years ago, the people who had the power, who are choosing the program, who are organizing the summer festivals, who are in charge of the brass quintet, which is all men. Or you know, those are men, and they're just choosing the people they know who they they have beer with or whatever you know i mean i can just understand like this is human nature we're dealing with how it happened but not necessarily what's best for that's it's not what's best for the whole musical landscape because right. you're only hearing pieces written by literally half of humanity mm -hmm. so absolutely you know. and it's in they're replicating their own cycles mm -hmm. uh, it's i'm a freelancer um so I experience a brass player on top of the, you know, um, mm, I experience that constantly. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, 
you have to fit in really well with the guys if you want to get asked back and right that is not always a safe environment and it's not always right a comfortable environment and there's a very fine line of of putting yourself in positions where you are going to be friends but you don't want to give the wrong impression it's complicated it's it's yeah very complicated yeah so you want to be true to yourself true to music and but you also want to get gigs and right that's yeah it's it is tough um, things are getting better slowly oh always but you know i never thought that i would have the number of performances that i do like 10 years ago 20 years ago so you know it but it, it's slow to change because music is done it's carried on almost like a folk tradition you know teachers Yes. teach the music that they were taught themselves because that's what they know and Mhm. then they you know or you're used to seeing brass quintets of men that's normal and so then you're gonna go to higher brass quintet or Well, well and the teacher doesn't have to work as hard. If they have a group who brings the Malcolm Arnold Brass Quintet to them that they've played 15,000 times, they know that piece. They don't have to go and research it and learn it themselves right to teach it. It's it's a self-replicating sure cycle. And those who yeah follow my Instagram will be able to see the, I'm, I'm breaking down Marcia Citron's Gender in the Musical Canon right now for bite-sized pieces for audiences who don't like reading musicology books, because um, I'm a nerd. So, you know, it's it's the, the way the canon is reproduced in academic institutions and outside of it is all very dependent on these you know like i said self-replicating cycles and it's it's fascinating how it works and it's our job i think as disruptors to try and break those cycles and say hey here's something new to try <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. so we are coming to the end here so i'm going to do the rapid fire questions at you so we can finally Okay. let you talk about your opera so um what hobbies and activities do you do for fun outside of music Oh, I'm such a nerd, barely anything. Um, I exercise just enough so I don't like fall apart, um, which Uh, I'm is working like a on walk. that. I'm like, I mean, really that's like taking a walk. It's like, well, I walk <laughs> for the dog for 20 minutes. That's yep. My exhausting new deal is if work I on want it. Starbucks, I have to walk the dog to the Starbucks instead of ordering Oh, okay. it. That's my Yeah, new deal with myself. good, good. <laughs> uh, um, let's see, like hobbies. I, I used to sometimes like cooking, um, but now I'm like so ob obsessed with the idea of writing this opera thing that like, I, I feel like I'm wasting my time if I'm doing other things. So like, I'm not very good at keeping house. I can say that I'm like really kind of a pig. I do the absolute minimum because I, I just don't care anymore. I love being in my fifties. I'm 55 now. And it's like, I can just do what I want. I don't care what people think of Oh, me, I love what that. anyone's extra taste, you know. Um, I need to steal that energy. but <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's kind of nice. So I can just focus more on what I want. I mean, I've had two kids and this one is off, you know, flew off from the nest or whatever. Um, and the other is about to graduate from high school. And so, and now she, the younger one can drive. So this has opened up so much more time in my life. Oh, I don't have you're to not drive the chauffeur her to, anymore. well, Yes. yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, it's like, what? I have this crazy amount of time now. And then I look back, it's like, how did I possibly write the trio for brass? I had this like newborn baby who was like, ah, oh, Wow. he was not, not a happy camper of a baby. So it just took like, like healthy, but just so high, High high maintenance. impact I would say I mean yeah yeah like I don't even know how I did that kind of thing but but now I'm like in this great place where I can just <laughs> you know lose myself in my music for hours a day which is fantastic mm -hmm. So tell me about this opera you're writing. I'm excited to oh hear about it because I love opera. oh <laughs> opera well since you asked only since you asked okay so um I dearly love the human voice like people ask me what's your favorite instrument to write for and I'll actually say the human voice is the most natural you know we don't have all the 
technical thing, things the going apparatus. on. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, they can run out of air. So there's that. Um, anyway, so um, I have so far written two young audience operas that are around 45 minutes um, long. Actually, one of them is going to be done in Ecuador and Guayaquil on cool. June 1st. But yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Um, and, oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm excited about that. Um, anyway, but um, I have up to around four years ago, I was my compositional output was completely determined by commissions coming my way, which is a fantastic place. You know, I'm so lucky that I was in that position. Um, and, but I thought, you know, if I keep doing this, I will write only string orchestra pieces and trombone pieces. Like, especially that's what I think I'm most known for. And I, I just want to be writing other things. Like, I really don't think I have another string orchestra piece in me after like 30, 35, whatever it is mm -hmm. I've written. Um, anyway, so I thought, you know, I really want to write a full-length grand opera. And I had been looking for a good a good story for it for a couple of years. And I was in um in Bavaria and my my husband is German and his parents owned a house there and there and he she found this article that just fell out of a book that he picked up and it was about character character okay it's a character in my opera now but <laughs> a person a, a this man who lived during the holocaust named anton schmidt he was from vienna austrian guy but he got drafted into the wehrmacht to work you know as, as a nazi um though he was not a nazi but that was his job but he had no choice had to do that and he was brought to vilna lithuania and posted there and um he ended up working undercover to save around 300 Jews. Wow. And it was, you know, we hear about Schindler, who was, in some ways, he, he was a lot safer than Schmidt was. Like, he was high standing in society. He was wealthy. He was respected. And he could, he didn't have as much, I don't know, I won't say he didn't have as much to lose, but he wasn't at as great a risk as Schmidt, this, mm -hmm. like, little nobody guy was. And so Schindler saved so many Jews, got away with it and lived to tell the tale. Schmidt, unfortunately, not the same happy ending there. Oh, so wow. um, yeah, yeah, he was caught and executed. So sorry to, there's spoiler light. Spoilers. Too late. Um, <laughs> but there, it was such an interesting story. He was such a remarkable man in that he wasn't highly educated and high set. He was just an ordinary, like blue collar kind of guy, worked really hard. He was an electrician, started to shop for himself. And he was just a really nice guy. He was a mensch and he would see bad stuff things in Jews he's no stop that you know and he would you know he went up and he slapped a little boy who threw had thrown a rock through the window the glass store front window of a Jewish owned business you know wow. and then the police came and arrested him for it and but a, a police and there are so many like little details that really happen in real life that are going to be fantastic on the opera stage for instance so this, this policeman walks up and they had these swords um and Schmidt grabbed the guy's sword with both hands and he bent it in half and handed Whoa. it back to him. He actually did that. And I and and like that is not something I made up. Like it's it's like this it's is a just, real life thing that happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because there was someone, there was a child who survived the whole was he yeah, he was a child who survived the Holocaust because his parents sent him away. He was Jewish, but you know, they sent him away to England. And so he survived the Holocaust that way. And but he witnessed that and he wrote about it later. And apparently that's something if you wanted to like really emasculate someone, you would just take their scabbard, their sword, and bend it in half. Wow. And he 
So I have like, there's a lot of things like that. There's a character who travels in disguise because he works for, so he's, um, he's Jewish and he has this thick Yiddish accent and there is no way he can fake being anyone but a Jew. Um, even though there were some like blonde Jews who could still travel and with fake papers, but he didn't, but he, he had his own fake papers, but he was a, a Tatar, Tamara, the Tatar. Um, and I have this aria about him. So he had, you know, he, this dark swarthy complexion and everything, but he passed, he could pass as a Tatar because they, they looked like that. And wow. he spoke Arabic just well enough, I assume, to to pass for someone who is not European at all. And and um, also he would be circumcised being Jewish. So if they you know checked him out that way, which is something that was definitely possible, he could say, oh, but I'm, I'm a Muslim Tartar and we are circumcised. So he could get away. So he would travel to the other Jewish centers, getting the word out. It's like, you know what's happening at your place? It's happening everywhere. And, and Vilna actually was the earliest that's where like the mass killings started they didn't have concentration camps they had another way they did it which this is i'm not gonna ruin your podcast by going to details but these there were you know jews who would travel in disguise to other jewish centers you know ghettos and and just you know jewish centers in europe to get the word out it's like you need to watch out and because this is not just a little bullying going on this is part of a big organized campaign anyway so i thought this is a man whose story should be told Mm-hmm. And not just to honor his legacy, excuse me, not just to honor his legacy, but also I'm interested in the power of one, power of one man who could by himself make such a huge difference. What if there had been more people who did who had done that during the Holocaust? Or even today, you know, we still have modern day slavery going on. And just to know that, you know, you don't have to be a politician, you don't have to, you could just be one like ordinary person who can make such a huge difference mm-hmm. and have the the courage to follow follow your conscience and just act on it and make things happen and which is what he did i i could not agree more in the climate that we have right now with a rise of an american nazi movement and yeah. i mean there's just horrible horrible things going on people are being oppressed left and right it is on each and every one of us, I think, to take the kinds of stands that we as our, ourselves are able to take. And for some people, that's only voting. For some people, that's protesting. For some people, that's writing protest music. I mean, there's, it, mm-hmm. we have a, an individual civic responsibility, I think, to to follow our moral compass and try and stick up for what's right. So the fact that you're putting this into music, I think, is going to be really something special. Um, where are you on the composition process? Do you have a premiere date happening? Or is this just... Oh, no, I don't. It's sort of... In, in a way, an orphan opera that it is not associated with any opera company. I just wanted to do what I'm, you know, do it the way I want to do it. Yes. And so far, I've re- I've completed Act One. It's about forty five minutes in piano vocal score. And um, there's a conductor that I I want to mention his name because he hasn't signed on for sure, but who's interested in doing it. And it would help a lot, you know, because he's very well positioned in the opera world and has been helping me. He's gone over every aria with me, uh, you know, to make sure everything right. You know, it's it's really I'm incredibly lucky to have that kind of input from someone of the stature. Anyway, mm-hmm. so I'm waiting to hear he he has to see how the rest of his schedule for this coming year is going to, you know, mm-hmm. fall into place before he schedules this. But I'm so I'm planning a workshop performance, which will be the vo- about eight voices and piano, mm-hmm. and just to try it out, make sure everything works well. Does you know, right. does it feel too long here, too short, or what? Um, and 
so that's chunk of music is already completed. And right now I am composing act two. I'm also writing the libretto for it, which has required a huge amount of research. And a lot has been written about this time and about this person and about some of the other people who are characters in the opera. So everyone is based on a real life person Incredible. in the opera. And are you composing it in English yeah. or in German? In English. Okay. Yeah, I was curious. I was like, oh, yeah. yeah, I wonder. yeah. <laughs> well, since your husband's yeah. German, he could have helped. <laughs> right. Well, he actually has been helping because some of the original sources were written in German. So he's been oh, translating nice. for me. Yeah. That's incredible. So I imagine that's taking up yeah. the bulk of your composition time right now. So that's probably your big project. The, <laughs> yes, the 100%. And I am just across the board saying no to all other commissions coming in because I want, and I do have a commission for this actually there's a private donor who has like made yeah. it possible like a couple years worth of salary so I can write this Just, how wonderful yeah that, that really is yeah yeah so we'll save everybody who wants to commission you for the you know future once this is done then they can talk to you again yeah yeah <laughs> give me two another two years or so yeah and the, the name of the the name of the opera is the mensch so if oh, you see I that, that. there like if it's out there, then you know that maybe I'm open for business again for other things. <laughs> yeah, then we that, know it's safe to, to, to go on. <laughs> yeah. Well, for those who are looking to find out more about your music, I know they can find you on your website, which is uh, laurenbernofsky.com. Is there anywhere else mm -hmm. we can find you? I'm sure you have recordings on YouTube and then Spotify. Yeah. Yeah. So SoundCloud. Yeah. Um, there's some things I don't put things on Spotify, but I, mm -hmm. other people have a little bit, for, especially some recordings. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess YouTube. And if you're looking to buy a piece, J.W. Pepper lists almost everything I've written. Easy enough. So, okay. Yeah. Oh, well, I appreciate you taking the time to come talk to me and I can't wait to hear your opera when it comes out. So I will be looking for that myself. <laughs> oh, it's been my great pleasure to talk to you. Thank oh, you. Thank you so much. So for everybody listening, thanks for joining us and we'll see you again in two weeks with our next composer. And this has been Represent the Podcast. Thank you. This has been Represent the Podcast. For more episodes, you can find us at Spotify and Apple Podcasts or on my website, www.katiebethmckinney.com. If you liked what you heard today, please rate us five stars or leave a review. Thank you for listening. <laughs>